So to start off with, you know, the question, Labor in power, has it ever made a difference? I think we need to start off with the Labor Party. Is it different? Is it different from the Liberals? And I think for better, and I'm going to argue sometimes for worse, Labor's relationship to the working class is fundamentally different from the Liberal Party. And I think people know that in their guts. They know that when they look at Morrison and the incredible euphoria we're going to get when we kick him out, that, and for every Liberal government, that the Liberal Party is an out-and-out party of the ruling class and they rule completely in the interests of business. Whereas the Labor Party, since its formation in the 1890s, has an organic relationship to the working class. And I think to most accurately explain the nature of the Labor Party, we could say it's a party of the, of the union bureaucracy that sits at the top of the, um, of the trade union movement. Even to today, 50% of delegates in the Labor Party conference are union members. So there's an actual formal um, organic relationship between the trade union movement and therefore between the working class um, and the ALP. And I think... You know, we want to do everything we can between now and the election to make sure that Morrison is absolutely humiliated in the polls um, and we know that if the Liberals win again, it's going to be disheartening for everybody who wants to see change um, in this country. But I think it's because of the Labor Party's relationship to the working class that actually sometimes in Labor's history the party has been used to sell some of the most complete attacks on working class living standards in a way that the Liberal Party actually can't do. And I'm going to talk about a really important example of that. And I think today's talk um, is probably in reality the question, will, Al will Albanese Labor make a difference? And when we look at the way that um, Albo and the Labor Party is running, the truth is that they are doing everything they can to indicate that they're not going to make a difference because they've got this no target you know, we had the small target strategy that started under the Beasley Labor opposition, which didn't manage to kick out Howard. But Albo's strategies are no target. They literally want to keep their heads under the, under the radar. Um, the most recent, you know, really obscene example was that they had promised they were going to review the terribly low JobKeeper dole rate. And they said recently that they're not even going to review that when they come into power because they don't want to do anything that they feel like the media and the Liberals can bash them over. It's this kind of no-target strategy. And, you know, aged care is pretty much their central pitch, which I think is a really smart and important thing. We've seen through the pandemic the absolute horrific conditions inside aged care for, um, you know, for the patients and the residents there, but the horrific low, um, you know, low pay and terrible working conditions for you know, for staff, and it's, it's very smart and right of Labor to say that they're going um, to reform that. But let's look at the, the scope of what they're promising there. They say that in comparison to the Liberals, uh, they're going to fully fund whatever the, Fair Work, whatever the Fair Work Commission grants for the, the workers' wages, whereas the Liberals are saying they're going to discuss with providers about how to split um, those costs. And Labor is also um, putting in registered nurses 24-7 into those aged care services, as well as improving food and promising a certain minimum amount of, of staffing hours for, uh, for aged care residents. But the non-wage component of that pledge, which is kind of the high point that I think people are looking at when they see some hope that Labor will be different, is $2 billion dollars. At the same time, Labor is committing to keep the, what's called the third stage of Morrison's tax cuts, which means that 
coming in next year, um, which means that people who earn over $120,000 per year are going to have a tax cut which will take $19 billion per year out of the budget. So their non-wage bit of the aged care reforms is going to give $2 billion while they're allowing people on over $120,000, $16 billion that could have gone to funding health, funding education um, out of the budget. Uh, you know, their climate policy, we can talk in more detail about the limits of that, but I think it's very telling. You know, Albanese is not saying, we're going to end climate change. He says, we're going to end the climate wars. And they were so relieved when their climate policy didn't get any media. It was so, you know, they got the tick of approval from the Business Council. It was so beige, so middle of the road that it didn't actually get much scrutiny. And that was exactly what, um, exactly what Labor wanted. And I think most importantly, um, you know, when you look at what Albo's promising, they're getting rid of the, um, the ABCC watchdog on the construction union and a few good things like that. But they are leaving in place the industrial relations system which Howard created and which Rudd shamefully continued, which gives us, you know, controls over the right to strike, which are some of the worst in the OECD. And that's the Labor Party's, um, you know, policy. So I think what we need to understand is that the program that Labor's running with in this election is not a traditional social democratic Labor program. And I think um, it's, it's important to understand some of that. Um, I think we need to see that there actually has been a, a big shift in Labor over history. So you can understand the Labor Party in two phases, I'd say. You've got from 1890 at its inception until 1975 as a traditional Labor Party and 1975 to now as a much more neoliberalised version. Um, and I think it's important for people to understand from, 19, from 1890 until 1975, Labor Party ran in elections. It was never a small target. The party had a platform of full employment. They talked about the socialisation of the economy, like slowly nationalising more bits of the economy, the humanising of capitalism. Um, they talked about extending union rights. They talked about building a welfare state that meant genuine public housing, public education for all. And that's what they ran on in elections um, throughout that period. And the truth is they didn't look to ruling class uh, newspapers for support because the Labor Party was a vibrant social movement connected to a very healthy union movement that actually had organisation in the working class, had daily newspapers, had hundreds of thousands of members who... Built, you know, built their own capacity to um, to build a vote, to speak to people in an um, in an ordinary <clears throat> in an ordinary way, and didn't just rely on what the what the bourgeois media was going to um, was going to say about them. It's important to say they weren't a socialist workers' party. The Labor Party was deeply reformist, committed to the nature of. Uh, existing capitalism, and that meant a whole lot of horrors. It meant commitment to the nation state, commitment to the idea of economic growth under capitalism. It meant <coughs> promoting nationalism, promoting white Australia, um, and all of these sorts of things. And, and it, it certainly relied for every bit of uh, every bit of reform that they wanted to bring in. They relied on strong capitalist economic growth, which is a really important point that I'll come back to. But nevertheless, there was a social democracy platform that Labor stood for and they ran on and occasionally, very rarely, they won elections. And um, I want to give the example of what happened when Whitlam came to power in 1972 after 23 years of coalition rule because I think it gives you a bit of a taste of 
of you know, what Labor's platform and I'm going to also argue very strongly what social movements meant in terms of the legacy of, of Labor in this period. So Whitlam came to power and um, overnight he abolished university and TAFE fees, he doubled school funding, health, um, health funding up 20%, created Medibank, which was a socialised um, healthcare, the sort of forerunner of Medicare, but even better, uh, equal pay for women, no fought divorce, withdrew troops, withdrew Australia from the Vietnam War, uh, Northern Territory land rights, bilingual education, the Australian Council, he did these things overnight in coming to power. And, you know, it was a progressive vision for social change that actually doubled budget outlays. So it was an unashamed, we are going to make social programs and we're not, not afraid to spend money on them. I think it's really important to understand these things were fought for, not by the Labor Party, but actually they were won in the streets and in the workplaces in the lead up to the... Um, to the election of Whitlam. So just to give a flavour of what was actually going on in the struggle at that time, in 1970, 120,000 people had struck in the Vietnam moratorium um, against the war. We'd seen the long-running, incredibly heroic Gurindji strike. We'd seen the tent embassy on the lawns of um, Parliament House and the struggle for land rights we saw, and I think this is very, very critical, the victory of the 1969 Victorian general strike which smashed the penal powers. And that was a really, really crucial uh, thing which unleashed a, a lot of very important class struggle. The penal powers were a bit like our anti-strike laws and people in the Communist Party and the left of the Labor Party had set out and worked for years to actually talk about we are going to break these laws they're going to fine us, they're going to jail us and we're going to continue to push on and smash these laws. And that's what they did. When, when um, they jailed Clary O'Shea, who was the leader of the Tramways Union in Victoria, people um, came out on strike, Victorian general strike, and the ruling class paid O'Shea's fines, uh, made the whole thing go away because they knew that if they didn't kill the penal powers, actually the industrial struggle was going to go up and up. So that was a really key moment where people smashed anti-union laws with a constructive, um, planned uh, strike program and those laws were a dead letter. And that was really crucial in actually unleashing the industrial power which was connected at that point to all of these social movements around women's rights, around, um, around Aboriginal rights and so forth. So we get, the late, we get the Whitlam victory and this incredible, you know, in the first month making all these incredible changes. But this is quite important. In 1972, when Whitlam launched his, um, his program, he said this, Our program, particularly in education, welfare, hospitals and cities, can only work successfully within a framework of strong, uninterrupted growth. This requires that the national government must, by consultation and cooperation with all sections of industry, achieve a growth rate of 6 to 7% in each of the next three years. 6 to 7% of economic growth. This is the real answer to the parrot cry, where's the money coming from? Even at the present low rate of growth, Commonwealth income has nearly doubled in the last six years. I'm not sure what the present low rate of growth is, but this was the very end of the post-war boom that had seen like massive economic growth. And so... Um, you know, just steadily growing um, government income. And Whitlam says it explicitly, that's the basis on which we can fund, we can double the budget, we can spend money on health and education. And I think that's one of the Achilles heel of, um, of the Labor program that became, you know, that became very important in, in what I'm going to say later. And it's not the first time we see this. Um, you know, Scullin, 
elected two days before the Great Depression of 1929. Very, very bad timing. You know, huge euphoria around the election of this Labor government that was um, going to, you know, bring workers' rights and do all these kind of things. But when the Great Depression hit Australia very, very deeply, massive unemployment, huge sovereign debt crisis, all of these things happened, um, Scullin immediately went to um, smash down the government spending and, you know, they cut the minimum wage by 10%. He forced through cuts of 20% of all budgets uh, for state governments. So basically just at a time when unemployment was going through the roof, they were cutting pensions, cutting unemployment benefits. Labor voters literally starved at that point. So this is not the first time in Labor's history when we, uh, that, that this question of, yes, when there's, when there's a boom, when there's growth, we'll fund things, but actually when the system goes into crisis, we can't do that anymore. We've got to put it on ice. But I think what's worth stressing is that when Scullin did that, it was seen as an almighty betrayal, and actually the New South Wales branch of the Labor Party split away from Scullin um, and under the, a guy called Jack Lang, who was no massive left-winger, but he actually was forced by the, you know, the anger inside the Labor movement and, and the left at the, at the Great Depression to do things like um, put a moratorium on evictions. They tried to stop um, debt... Um, what would you say? They tried, tried to stop the, their creditors in London from um, extracting the money out of the New South Wales Treasury and they literally took the gold bullion from the Treasury and hid it in Trades Hall and had um, delegates defending it with guns saying, no, we're not giving that money back to the creditors. We need that for the pension. So, you know, so I think the point is that... Um, <clears throat> There is a long history, and Scullin's the absolute worst, of Labor instituting attacks that, you know, literally push their survivors, uh, push their, their voters into um, starvation. But I think even what Scullin and the rest of them said at that time is, OK, yes, it's a crisis. We'll put, a, we'll put a, um, our reforms on hold. But once the economy grows again, then we're still committed to this vision of social change um, and, and so forth, which is it, very flawed, but I think changes as we get as we get later. And a very similar thing happened to Whitlam um, in 1974, the stagflation crisis, which was connected to oil prices, but basically represented the end of the long post-war boom, hit Australia, and we, for the first time in 30 years, you actually had um, a serious economic crisis in Australia. And Whitlam did exactly the same, well, tried to move towards the same thing that Scullin was doing. He scratched his program. It was called the biggest policy reversal in history. He tried to wind all those programs back and look at how can we maintain economic growth. And that's an important point because neither the left nor the right in Australian history remembers that, that actually Whitlam tried to pull back his program and deal with the economic crisis. Um, and and that's, that, that's a very important thing. You know, Whitlam's seen as, you know, just this glorious leader who um, was going to give us all these things and then was snatched away by the CIA or at least by the Liberals. But in fact, Whitlam was scrambling to find a way to do not necessarily the depth of what Scullin had done, but to actually deal with, OK, we're presiding over this economic crisis, Labor's got to drop its support for the working class and deal with that. But that process was cut very short because the ruling class was in absolute panic and the dismissal was a way of getting rid of that, that government and bringing in a government that they hoped was going to absolutely savage the, the working class in order to 
in order to deal with this economic crisis. And I'm going to talk about the Fraser years, not because I'm just falling into a chronology of Australian governments. Fraser was a Liberal, but this is actually quite important for, I think, understanding um, the sequence of, of how we get ourselves here today. So Malcolm Fraser was elected in the face of the stagflation crisis and the political crisis around Whitlam's dismissal. And he was a contemporary of Thatcher and Reagan. His treasurer was John Howard. And as I said, the ruling class looked to him to slash back wages, curtail unions and actually deal with the, the crisis of the 1970s, get the budget under control, all those kind of things. So the, the scene was set to do that. But the truth is, Fraser couldn't do it. He failed on every account. And that's because of the strength of the working class at that time. There was the, the bitterness about the dismissal. People looked at Malcolm Fraser and said, he's not our, he's not our leader. We never elected him. You know, the, the sense that they'd been robbed of the Labor government previously. Um, but just the, the strength of the working class fought off reform after reform. Um, and, you know, the, it, actually it's at that point that the profit share is lowest in Australian history, the struggles under, um, under the Fraser government. So in 1979 there was a lot of inflation, but workers won a 13.5% wage increase, and in 81-82 they won a 16% pay increase, um, you know, both those years. So that was through, like, militant um, struggle that, that meant that the Fraser um, government was, you know, fairly impotent. And the leader of the, the ACTU during those struggles was Bob Hawke. So this is where we get the Hawke-Keating government from, is actually the ruling class realised that there was a complete impasse. Fraser wasn't able to do what they wanted and profitability was getting lower and lower. So they started to be open to the Labor Party being able to sell an attack on wages, an attack on unions that the Liberals failed to do. And they looked to the person who was the, the figurehead of this militancy, Bob Hawke, who managed to sell himself as the person who was going to do this. And this is where we get the accord from. And, you know, after Whitlam's dismissal, the logic in the Labor Party, which I think we can... There's pale echoes of it when people dealing with what happened last time with Shorten's defeat. But when the, the Labor in opposition looked at Whitlam, they said he went too far too fast. We can't do that again. They had this, you know, pro-business orgy conference in 1975 where they talked about, you know, the economy's still terrible. We can't offer any reforms until we've dealt with these wage breakouts and the question of inflation. And the party reoriented itself, the leadership reoriented itself to um, a completely a completely different strategy. So the accord, it was an arrangement between the ACTU and Labor and it was a kind of centralised planning of the economy that was based on wage restraint in exchange for spending on social programs. The reality is that we got a hell of a lot of wage restraint, we did not get a hell of a lot of spending on social programs. But more to the point, I think it's really important to understand, you know, the strength of the unions under Whitlam, before Whitlam, under Fraser, was based on the capacity to strike, organisation in the workplace, delegate structures. What did the Accord do? It said, you can't strike, we're going to set it up for you, we're going to sit down and work out what the wages are, we're going to get, give you a good deal, go home, no more strikes, no more wage rises. And this was absolute poison for the, um, you know, for the organisation of the unions. So 
This is what, what happened under the Accord. We get a complete reversal of the wage profit shift. You know, you can see it, it and it's never, it's never recovered, obviously. But suddenly profit goes up, wages go down. Uh, union density, when, when Hawke came to power in 1983, 48% of the workforce were union members. When Keating left, 31%. An absolute decimation of, the, of, the, um, of, of union density. When Keating ran in 1991 and won the election, this was his statement, so I'll let him say it in his own words. The aggregate wage and profit shares have been restored to levels which are consistent with a structurally sound economy and durable economic growth. The rebound in the gross profit share of the non-private farm corporate sector um, since the early 1980s has reversed the previous fall. The accord between the government and the ACTU has delivered unprecedented wage restraints since 1983 and has been a key factor in achieving record job growth through the 1980s and today's low inflation. The structural reform initiatives announced in this statement will further enhance that process. Real wage restraint under the accord has meant that the downturn in profitability during this recession has been less marked than, during, than in the 1982-83 recession. This leaves business well-placed to take advantage of opportunities to invest and expand output. So this is Keating's argument to be elected as Labor leader in 1991. And I think what we can see by that point is Labor's you know, complete abandonment of a social democratic platform for change. In fact, for Keating, economic crisis wasn't some aberration that maybe we need to just you know, tighten our belts per, you know, um, temporarily, but we can hope to ameliorate some of the worst effects. For Keating, crisis was this brilliant um, you know, form of economic, you know, creating economic efficiency. He talked about you know, holding the blowtorch of crisis to the market. He, he, saw, he welcomed it as a, as a reform tool. You know, so the recession, you know, the recession we had to have, 10% of Australian workers unemployed. Keating was like, this is great, it's, it's got inflation down. He actually, welcomed, um, you know, he actually welcomed the mechanism of economic crisis. And then we see the, the politics. Instead of a Labor Party that stands for you know, increasingly humanising, somehow evolving towards a more friendly, soft capitalism, Actually, corporatisation, they bring in national competition policy that forces government departments to, to compete, to you know, move towards the market, and then just out-and-out privatisation, selling off Qantas, selling off um, all of these sorts of assets. So I think w what we can see is that Hawke and Keating's rule has reconstituted the Labor project, and it's also had a terrible effect on Labor's um, primary vote and union membership, as I mentioned earlier, and delegate structures and the combativity of the, of the working class. And so I think this is really key when we're looking at Labor since that time. Actually, all ALP leaders, since the Hawke and Keating, have religiously supported what Hawke and Keating did. It's, you know, it's an item of faith in the Labor Party is that we want to be like them, absolutely every, every one of them. And I think that's where we get the small target from. It's because basically... Um, Labor has accommodated to the kind of neoliberal centre to such a degree that the only way to win elections is not to stand on a platform and build support despite what the ruling class is doing, but to try and hover so close to the Liberals that you know, they can just hang themselves and will get into power. Um, to, I think the times when it's got a you know, better quality, the election of the Rudd government at the end of the Howard years, Actually, Rudd was in the same mould. He you know, ran in the election as a fiscal conservative. He said the waste must stop. All those kind of things attacked Howard 
from the right. But the difference in that election was that there was actually a really strong your rights at work movement, a rejection of the work, uh, um, of the work choices legislation that Howard had put in and there were mass um, demonstrations, union organisation and I think that helped Rudd get a flavour of, you know, that he actually stood for some change. And he was also very good at symbolism. He signed the Kyoto Treaty, Treaty, and so he said, you know, climate change is the moral issue of our times. He kind of signalled change, he apologised to the stolen generations, all those sorts of things. But when you actually look at the fine print, he was as much as anyone, we, we support what Hawke and Keating did and we want to continue that. Okay, just winding up. One point I want to make about Albo as well. You know, the the policy, I think, the continuation of the reliance on the market. You know, what we need in aged care, what we need in childcare is actually for the state to step in and fund those services and create good working conditions. You know, same with the need for publicly funded renewables. We actually need an expansion of a state that's that's going to do things that ordinary people need in the face of the crises that that we face. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to just say with the, the aged care policy, so Albo said that he's going to fund the complete um, wage, wage claim for the aged care workers. But this is, a, this is an industry with some big private players. So Bupa Aged Care, they, um, their profits went up 154% two years ago. They're making $29 million in profit. So Albo's just saying, we're going to pay these wages and the companies are very happy about it and his solution to the possible profiteering, which is absolutely inevitable, and same with childcare, is that we're going to publish, we're going to force them to publish whether they make profit or not. You know, absolutely weak in the face of what we need, which is, which is massive state intervention to deal with these sorts of problems. So I think despite the no-target strategy, it is nevertheless the case that the Labor Party remains connected to the working class. And what we get is this sense that people want change, they're desperately hungry for some social change, and they read onto the Albanese government or you know, any others these hopes, whether it's around... Um, you know, and, and I think what we're going to see is a big gap between the hopes that people vote, hopefully vote Albo in with and the change that they actually want to see. Um, and I think that's where... That's where we come in as socialists. Um, that hope is good. We want people to aspire to change. Um, and I think the fact that there's, the unions are not running any kind of change the rules or anything like that is a big gap. But what we have right now is actually a, um, some really important strikes and struggles in the lead-up to the election. And I think they are crucial for people on the streets being the opposition that we need to see to Morrison. We want him wiped out with a sense of rising struggle. And we've got them. We've got, um, you know, we've got a teacher's strike, most likely in New South Wales, just before the election. We've got um, a climate strike. And, you know, congratulations to comrades for, for doing that. We need to be the opposition on the street that Morrison needs and we've got to prepare to be the opposition um, that, that Albo's going to need as well. And we've got a, a Sydney Uni strike both before and after the election, which is also really important because I think those things show the kind of change that people really hunger for and they show the way, you know, the kind of vision for an alternative that we can, that we can have. So, yeah, we need to be the opposition to Morrison and we also are going to need to be the opposition to an Albanese no-target government as well.